0: A playlist original. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Queer We Go. It's coming out party, if you will. An introduction. I'm your host, Jessie Honor, and I use she-her pronouns. I'm a UK-based journalist, a culture nerd, and, to quote my favourite t-shirt, still bisexual after all these years. While it's the beginning, it's also something of an ending. An age-old end-of-the-year list of LGBTQ cultural highlights. Caution. There will be spoilers. This was inevitably a TV-heavy year, and it started on a high with a semi-autobiographical work in progress, a story of 45-year-old, self-identified queer dyke Abby, played by co-creator Abby McEnany, and her experiences with depression and OCD. At the heart of the show is her fledgling relationship with Theo Germain's character Chris a 22-year-old trans man with a love of charity shop shirts and a smile that could kill. The pair's honest communication before and during sex makes it a unicorn among shows with sex scenes, and it's oh-so-refreshing. Its tender, authentic depiction of chosen families and its subversion of cishet rom-coms means it warrants many a rewatch. And the cherry on top of the cake was that it introduced me to the song Love, Love, Love by Pansy Division. It's available on many platforms, including Sky and Now TV and we are set to get another series. But if you prefer sci-fi to realism, check out Netflix's I Am Not Okay With This, which taps into the experience of being queer in high school with pinpoint accuracy. The end of the effing world showrunner, British director Jonathan Entwistle, returned in February with an adaptation of another John Forsman graphic novel. We've seen the superpowers' puberty crossover numerous times. Take Buffy, for example. But I can't recall ever seeing these powers being used as a metaphor for young adult queerness to such great effect. In the final episode, Sophia Lillis's character Sid is asked about her best friend Dina, played by Sophia Bryant. Does she know about you? This refers to Sid's newly discovered abilities, which see her destroy things with her mind when she's angry. Which, after the loss of her father, is rather often. But Sid's voice turns high-pitched. Does she know about me? In what way? It's a tale as old as queer girl time. Sid, gazing at Dina across the school dance hall, is in love with her. I adored the curry ending, which answers the mystery that begins the show, whose blood is Sid covered in, and also overwrites the source material and therefore the bury your gaze trope. However, it lost out on a second season due to COVID. And yes, I am not okay with this. The teens behind two honorable mentions, the L Word, Generation Q, and The Wilds have recently revealed some exciting news, too. The latter, about a group of teen girls who get stranded on an island, features a thrilling portrayal of internalised homophobia and the damage that evangelical conversion therapy can do. But the sense of salvation found in queer love is Chef's Kiss Perfection. It's available on Amazon Prime Video, and it has just been announced that it is set to return for another season. Meanwhile, The L Word Generation Q, which sees fan favourites Bette, Shane and Alice from the original L Word return with a new generation of characters for more talking, laughing, loving, breathing, etc. We'll see talk show host and lesbian icon Rosie O'Donnell joining the cast for season two. I, for one, can't wait to see how the cliffhanger is resolved. I'm team Finley all the way. Now, this has been a terribly tough year for theatre, but luckily for us, many creatives have managed to go digital. A recent highlight for me was Hope Mill Theatre's Rent, which I was set to see in Manchester. Sadly, the cast only got to perform two preview shows before COVID dealt the industry another blow and they were forced to go online. But it was the epitome of what diverse, forward-thinking theatre should be. In this year of social distancing, director Luke Shepard and choreographer Tom Jackson-Greaves used the rare moments of contact between the cast wisely, notably in I'll Cover You reprise and the final, which made the show all the more poignant. Here's hoping we'll see a live transfer in the not-too-distant future. In other online theatre news, Gemma Lawrence's Sunny Mead Court, which sold out its live run in September at the Actors Centre in London, is now streaming into January 3rd. It tells the heartwarming tale of two women who live in tower blocks opposite one another, conducting a relationship from the safety of their balconies. Travis Alabanz's Overflow is also heading online, After recently having its run at London's Bush Theatre, Cut Short, the funny yet piercing monologue sees Reese Lyons' character Rosie cornered into a flooding public toilet cubicle, forced to distract herself by thinking of past encounters in women's bathrooms, a space which has horrifyingly become an ideological battleground in recent years. It will be going live from January 18th to the 23rd. But it's not all about visual streaming. Producers have found other inventive ways of putting on plays, and that includes 45 North and Ellie Keel Productions' Written on the Waves series of audio plays. A Passion Play is one such play. Anime Fletcher's sound design, Jessica Lazar's direction, and Nicola Coughlin and Hannah Bristow's vocal acting all do Margaret Perry's wonderfully touching tale about how to reconcile faith and queer love justice. It's a true celebration of storytelling, and you can listen to it on SoundCloud. I chatted with Hannah about her recording experience and her thoughts on LGBTQ representation. My uh, my name is Hannah Bristow
1: and uh, my pronouns are she, her. Um, and how would you sum up a passion play? How would I sum up a passion play? What a good question. Yeah, basically is uh, the story of two young girls in Ireland in 2015, um who are putting on their easter passion play at the same time as the gay marriage referendum in ireland and um yeah so catholicism and queerness meet essentially um yeah and they're talking about costumes and maths class and they're also talking about how they fancy each other and um how those two things collide
0: cataclysmically in a very teenage way essentially. As you say, the story portrays the interplay between faith and queer love, um, and it does it so brilliantly. Um, One of my favourite lines is, I don't think they consecrated the car park, but obviously the car park is where they do connect, so it's a sacred space for them. Um, How did you approach the religious elements of the text? Did you do any research for that at all?
1: Um, Yeah, good question. Um, So I was raised Church of England quite quite devoutly, really, in lots of ways. My mum was quite upset. She found out that I didn't believe in God. Um, so, yeah, like a lot of it, um, like I associated with that journey of that, those two things colliding, I mean, because, yeah, I think religion is beautiful and I, I wish I could believe in it often. Um, I think it's, yeah, really a glorious thing. And so, yeah, it's um, I accessed it through that, really. Um, we had a lot of conversations in the room about like the slightly differences between like Catholicism and Protestantism. I've got a very close friend of mine who's English Catholic. And, um, yeah, he he was very helpful. Uh, if occasionally there would be a question, I'd be like, oh, there's this thing that I know about. Would you have known about this? And he was like, absolutely not. Never heard of that before in my life. Or, like, vice versa. So, yeah, I think there are, like... Yeah, and I think it does... They are very different, the two. I think there's, like, quite a potent difference between the two, really, that goes deep. And, uh, yeah, trying to access that. I've also played... I mean, yeah, I've also played a similar character before, uh, like, a teenage Italian Catholic. Um, who was queer and so I did a lot of work then, a lot more then really, about looking at what Catholicism is and how it might have affected the way I thought in a slightly different way to the way I've been raised here and also like how that culturally bleeds into your life I think is more distinct, mm. um, is the difference between those two things.
0: Interesting um, and obviously as you say this isn't your first queer role, um, how did this experience compare to others you've done because you mentioned I'm assuming that was Napoli, Brooklyn that was Natalie Brooklyn, yeah. I did
1: that at the park and we also did a UK tour with it. Yeah, it's, um, how does it compare? Good question. Yeah, I mean, the age of the characters I play tend to be the same. So the journey often is quite similar. Um, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I tend to also play, the queer characters I have played tend to also be very uh, assured in their queerness. And surprisingly so for very young people um so that's great that i project that vibe um and yeah get the chance to play people who have such self-assurity i think that's uh yeah a real gift really um so yeah those that's a, a supreme similarity really um between them yeah it's, it's good that actually because there's obviously frequently when we see queer roles being portrayed it's about like the trauma of that and the difficulty of that queerness and so yeah that's why i say that it is really brilliant to play characters who are just like it's fine why is no one else finding this fine and i think that, yeah, that's glorious and i think that being on stage is really important or being in any kind of medium as obviously this was on the radio and yeah to answer your question more directly the biggest difference with this one is we're not there we weren't in the room together Nicola and I have never met um, and you know may never I don't know where the world will turn but like you know that job is now done and we're not going to meet in that context so yeah and that's interesting when you're playing sexual tension essentially not to ever meet to meet as much as you and I are meeting right now is how well we met and um, yeah that's strange I think. So what was it like
0: your experience of recording something so intimate in separate spaces?
1: What you end up having to do I think when you're recording for radio is and alone if you're using your own home studio is you have to be in an intimate like you have to make yourself feel intimate anyway you're like right up against the mic you're in a tiny enclosed space we also couldn't see each other because of the the nature of the recording equipment we were using it was sound only to speed it up I think and um which makes it even more intimate, really. You have to really lean in. You have to really listen. Like, you're listening to the clicks and the snaps of people's voice. And, like, I think it actually becomes more intimate because of that. Whereas, like, it's less about, like, like bodies and looking at each other. It's more about really listening. And I think if we try and make that a bigger point, like, yeah, life is about listening to each other. And, uh, yeah, it was good, actually. I liked it.
0: Yeah. You want to do that again, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it would be nice, yeah, to do more of it. Yeah. Though I don't I would rather be on a stage, um, in, like I love. I think people are really important, and looking at people's faces is also vital. So yeah, that's the silver lining of a difficult situation. I think. How much did you relate to Sam personally? Um, yeah, Sam is a lot cooler than me. Is the main thing I'd say. Um, Sam is the kind of kid I would have liked to have been at school. Very good at sports. She's very self-assured. Um, so yeah, that that was that was the stretch. Um, I think. Uh, I think sam's quite lonely i think i associate with that uh yeah sam's on her own uh she's moved towns uh at this time you know for all of us were quite alone and i associate with that quite closely i was also like i was living alone at the time in the in a town i didn't know so yeah that was that felt quite touchable and i also think um sam's quite like a a melancholic person and i think you know i've got that in me more than i would probably like to admit but yeah she's a melancholic person and uh because she's had like a very deep trauma quite recently in the, uh, which isn't explicitly said in the play, but it is definitely there. And um, yeah, I think
0: I felt very close to that really. And you mentioned that it's important that tales like some Fridays get told. Do you think your own youth would have been um, any different if you'd seen more LGBTQ representation in mm. culture growing up? Cause I always think about that myself.
1: Yeah, definitely. Uh, it was actually a conversation we had during the recording this, um, there's a line in it where Bridie says, you just, you don't see it, you don't see people in the street and you don't see it on television. And we had quite like a, quite like an interesting debate about it really, because some of the people in the room were talking about like, you know, there's quite a lot of representation now in 2020 was the argument. I, I don't agree with that. I don't think fully personally, I think there is still more to be done. There is more to be said. There are more stories to be told. Maybe it's just the stories I want to be watching. I don't know. But um, yeah, I think there is more space. And I think when this, this play was set, which is five years ago, that was more seismically true. There was even less five years ago. I think we're in a stage now where those stories are booming. And that's brilliant. And I do think it is brilliant. Um, I think we need to be careful. It's not like a vogue that will go out of fashion again. Yeah, and the intensity with which like specifically queer female stories are everywhere, I think is beginning to worry me slightly that it is like voguish. Yeah, but uh, I think it is brilliant. And basically I envy, in short, I envy student, like kids. I teach children as well as one of my jobs. I envy the world that they're in, not only for like the media that's available, but also the internet. So I'm of an age where I didn't have the internet in primary school. By the time I was 13, we did have the internet, but I think the internet is the huge, democratizing medium and it's which i think is you know directly correlative to like trans issues exploding currently is because people who are a minority are able to connect and communicate and like have that connection in a way that wasn't possible when i was a kid and it was much easier i think for queer people to feel like isolated and strange and wrong and um so yeah uh, I can't quite remember the full question, but yeah, I envy. I envy the kids. Great answer. Yeah, <laughs> I envy the kids basically, and um, yeah, I think we can still do more. Basically, I think all stories need to be told as much as possible. Representation is important.
0: You mentioned obviously that things still need to improve. I, I often get frustrated with lots of queer tropes or queer stereotypes in culture. Um, so, do you have any that particularly annoy you in that regard? Yeah, it's a
1: really interesting line, this, and I don't know, yeah, I'm still trying to work out the answer, there's a like, we're in a knotty point of, like, a couple of things, this and also casting, I think there's a, we're in a point of, like, trying to work out quite how we do it, in telling a queer story, do we just tell, tell the story about the queerness, because if you tell the story about the queerness, the drama you end up having is that queerness is hard, or bad, or wrong, or different, and that's not interesting, like not interesting. And it's toxic to be perpetuating that as a narrative. Yeah, so like a point where queerness is incidental, I think would be great. Um, what's the film that, oh, I, I deliberately looked up all the names of the things I wanted to mention and I've forgotten them. What's the, um, the Kirsten Stewart film that just came out? What's it called again? Oh, um, Happy Season. Happy Season, then. yeah. I think, I think there's like, there's flaws in that film, lots of flaws in that film, actually. And that, you know, the drama ends up being around queerness. But I think what is interesting is the Daniel Levy character and the way that his queerness is incidental and it's just cultural. And I think I want more of that. And I watched that character and I was like, oh, this is, it like lifted my heart to see something like that. And person who is queer and like their character is actually nothing to do with the actual queer drama that's happening. He's like feeding the fish and and just like the, um, yeah, I think that's the kind of world I wanna see more of. It's dangerous to perpetuate narratives, but also important to see like the damage queerness um, or like internalized homophobia can do, I think that is important to see, but um, yeah, it's a, it's, a dang, it's, a, it's a hard line. We want more queer representation, but finding the stories that have that I think is trickier to get to a point where it's incidental is basically the ideal. I think. Have you seen um, Shit's Creek? Because again, that's another, I have, yeah, 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 I'm in the middle of it, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, yeah also, the, you, you've got essentially like a, a pansexual character in that, I think, again, is brilliant that like. And again, that's a difference between now and then. I think the choices that kids have with their queerness now is glorious. In a, in a, whereas when I was growing up in the 90s and the noughties, it's like, I go you straight, those are the two options. Yeah, having the, the queer umbrella as like more prevalent is brilliant and the loosening of those boundaries is. There is a question, however, about whether or not that's just you know the pockets of culture that I exist in, which are London and you know liberal. Um, and like spreading that across, I mean, the world, and across various different cultures, I think it's important, I think, you know, my parents' generation still haven't quite got their heads around it, regionally, I think people have still, you know, there's like, and I think that's media, and that's where media comes in, and stories, we tell them those stories, that's where they're powerful, essentially.
0: I know you already have devising experience, and I know a lot of actors branch into writing to create the parts Mm. that they wish they could see and play, have you Mm. considered that, and what sort of parts would you like to create, if so? Oh, what sort of parts would I like to create? Oh gosh,
1: well, if I knew that I'd be doing it, uh, if I'm honest with you. <laughs> I, um, I don't know, I uh, I don't know, something more about power, I think, something that's where my, like, yeah, empowerment of, I, I, I'm quite young looking and I'm all, you know, I'm female. And uh, I think that means I play passivity a lot, especially if I'm playing classical parts and, subverting that in some way, it would be something I'd like to do. I don't know quite how or what, but yeah. That's
0: fascinating. Um, um, So a less serious question. Um, The first kiss is symbolically provoked by Bridie breaking her Lent rules. Did you actually get to eat flying saucers?
1: no okay so i was upset about this okay so we had to we had to source our own props right so um i was eating i was eating dry white bread i was eating prawn cocktail crisps and um but then i could not for love or money anywhere i was living in stratford upon avon find flying saucers and i looked everywhere and i couldn't find them so what i was eating which is potentially more shows what stratford upon avon is like i was eating like these kind of like fizzy Percy pigs, in, um, <laughs> which were like the closest I could find. They were like covered in sugar. And, um, but I, you know, and I listened to the track, I'm like, it sounds too squishy, you know, <laughs> sounds wrong. And it wasn't a flying saucer. Um,
0: that's we that's were that's eating that's and that's chewing well. and. Uh,
1: um, say that again? <laughs> must
0: have been a rush on flying saucers, some kind of, yeah, <laughs> forget the <don't> roles. <laughs> everyone just wants flying
1: saucers now. Well maybe, I don't know, maybe they don't, maybe kids don't eat them anymore, I don't know, uh, where are they? It'd be terrible if it was You're case, really old now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh,
0: do you have a favourite scene or line from?
1: Oh, I think the way Margaret has written uh, the scene at the end where Sam talks about the bench, I think is like truly beautiful and like articulates like depression or panic attack or whatever that happens to be beautifully. That feeling, yeah. And what she says is that it's um, like, she describes the image of starlings and the way that starlings like fly together in the sky and they're like a black cloud. And then it's like that that black cloud glows through you and then it's gone again, I think is, just a perfect articulation of that, that feeling. And I think that's one of the things that Margaret is very good at.
0: One of the most poignant parts for me was the scene where Sam and Bridey burst into song because it felt so unexpected. Um, what do you feel that moment brought to the play and your experience of it?
1: Um, yeah, what a great, yeah, that's a really great bit. Um, yeah, I think it does sum up the point of it. Um, and also, yeah, the idea that love is God and God is love and whatever your God is, like, basically love is what it's all about. I mean, not just the play, but like loving people is like hugely important and like human compassion is hugely important. And I think that's what that does. And singing is joyous and bodily and physical and like it's about breath and you have to be loose and free and free from tension to do it. I think that's what that encapsulates. Yeah, and I think, yeah, that's the best part of religion for me, maybe one of the reasons I still wish I was religious is to stand and sing really loudly and like beautifully acu- beautiful acoustics um, with people. You have to listen again, you have to listen really carefully to sing well um, to, with people. And it's all those things, I think, kind of joined together. Um, yeah, and I think there's a tentativeness about the end. They're not it's, not, it's not quite there. It's not fully resolved what their relationship is and where it's going to go and whether it's going to work and all that kind of stuff. And um, yeah, I think the song manages to achieve that ambiguity while also giving that joy. It's smartly done.
0: Stage's review said it would translate beautifully to the stage. I would like to add my voice to that. Um, What are your thoughts? Could it have another life?
1: Oh, well, I I couldn't possibly say. Um, I think it could, I think it has the legs. I think it it was written originally for the stage. um, And the the earliest draft I read was for like a two person stage play. And um, it, yeah, and the chemistry of it. And that's the reason it got picked up, I think, is because it worked so well for that form. Um, There's talk of, yeah. It's gonna. It's almost certainly going to live again, I think, by the sound of things. I don't know. Um, things change very rapidly. Um, <laughs> but like, I think the plan somewhere along the line is to make it live again in some other form somewhere.
0: Written on the Waves encompasses a few queer stories and queer creatives, yes. including Elle Potter and Mary Higgins, um, Lemon Ginge, starring Sharon B. Clarke. How does it feel to have producers like Ellie Keel Productions and 45 North who are so keen to put LGBTQ plus stories at the forefront?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the question you've got me most emotional on. Those two women are, I mean, 45 North is a, it's a conglomerate, but like Jess and Ellie are like brilliant human beings, the pair of them. And both of them from the day one of their careers have been championing these kind of stories. Um, and to boot are both brilliant people. Um, I think it's, yeah, it's vital. And like, I think it's basically the key. I was thinking just before I spoke to you about how I would sum this up, really. Um, and what it comes down to is people in power caring about those queer stories and being able to cast well and cast people who feel it and play it well without being invasive or like asking questions they shouldn't do or like messing it up it's the people in power caring about those things is what matters really and so yeah I think I can't wait for those people to change the face of theatre essentially or you know put their stamp on it in some way I'm really excited that they're around and doing their thing
0: Um, And what difference do you think it makes having LGBTQ plus people working on queer projects specifically?
1: Mm, Yeah, I think um, it's the subtle difference between um, Putting it on and feeling it and knowing it's right basically Um, and what that does is like it means that you cast people who can play something well without yeah, we've kind of danced around the subject of like, it's a dangerous ground of like, obviously want queer people to be telling queer stories, but I think it's also a dangerous place to ask people that, about their queerness, especially if they're young. To, yeah, I think that's a ground that, you know, you don't want to turn to an 18 year old and be like, hi, are you gay? Or even younger. Um, and making people come out, I think is not something we should be doing. And also, I don't think people should necessarily have to put labels on themselves to play parts. Um, so I think, yeah, the difference it makes is, that you end up getting authenticity without people having to declare or define themselves. Um, And that's the difference it makes really. And you get the subtleties of things, you know, you get like, yeah, you understand that culture that we're talking about, Daniel Levy. You see that culture without having to like, be over demonstrative about it
0: queering the radio play in itself feels quite novel i can imagine the accessibility of it means a lot of people who might not be able to openly go to see queer shows because they aren't out or in a safe environment have Mm. had a chance to listen to it how does that make you feel
1: yeah that's a great thought i hadn't even thought of that what yeah exactly brilliant yeah i think one of the things that's amazing about the radio as a form um because i grew up listening to the radio which again shows you the kind of household i came from (laughs) but like yeah like a you know the radio 4 was on constantly which means that like stories are thrown into your living room and you just have to take them um and i think that is what exciting about it that you you yeah that they are almost invasive you know but um but yeah i think that's a really good point that the same intimacy that which we've with which we recorded it can also be listened to i think is great and there is also there was always um there's been talk on Twitter about one of the reasons lots of people have transitions during lockdown is it's been a like, or like announced their like, like clarity on their gender identities. Kate Tempest being a really clear example of that is because it's a time of self-reflection and time of being alone and um, yeah, really tapping into who you are in isolation from like structural oppressions basically. And um, yeah, I think if this play has helped in any way towards that, I would, yeah, that's a brilliant thing.
0: Have you heard anything more about the response to the play and what it's, you know, how people have reached. I cried at it on the train. I'm sure I can't think yeah. anyone to have had such a visceral reaction to it. So That's, um, we saw your tweet. That was yeah, amazing. Oh. Yeah.
1: Thank you. <laughs> I loved it. Um Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think people connect with it. I think um, yeah, lots of friends of mine have talked about that thing about God and love and the two things being dovetailing being a really glorious part of it. Um yeah, the rec- we like. The response from the press was brilliant um yeah um yeah i think does that answer your question that yeah it's um people seem to be moved by it and um hopefully there's maybe a universality to it which is maybe not the point of a queer narrative but i think there is a universality to it um and that's good i think yeah and i think moving people is important that's the point of art to make people that in my opinion maybe that's just yeah but i think yeah hearing that people are moved by it is the best thing i think um you know (laughs) what other um lgbtq plus culture has inspired you this year um yeah i thought you were gonna ask this one um yeah inspired me um what was the one um dating amber was the one that i watched in lockdown yeah i really enjoyed it and um similarly though again it's a coming out queer story but um yeah i really enjoyed it and uh just yeah, yeah I want more you know the more we have the more mistakes we can make you know um and the more variety we can have I was watching a um what was a documentary that was on Netflix it was talking about um the trans documentary on Netflix oh, they were the talking player. about yeah yeah exactly and I was watching that and uh yeah the question of like um, how one of the first representation of a trans man was in the L word and you know it ended toxically and which is a problem because then you have this weight that you can't have variety of stories with your representation because you're the only one. So it has to be perfect. Whereas if we have more, that story, you know, could have existed as among many other stories, you know, and um we're more able to make mistakes. So just do more. Um that's
0: a call to every listener. (laughs) Do more. Are you ever concerned about being pigeonholed when it comes to the parts you play?
1: Uh well I think so. Uh yeah, I think it's a dangerous area. Um I think also it's a reflective of who I am as a person. I think you know not wanting to be pigeonholed like I think uh fluidity is something or like lack of definition is something that I think I invest in more than the opposite which is also partly what why I do the job I do I want to play I want to play a thousand people I want to play everyone I want to play big people and small people and men and women and everything I can really um and feel as many feelings as I can that's where I'm coming from and so yeah um yeah that's what I'd like to do really and uh so, yeah, I'd, I'd rather not be pigeonholed, whether that's as a young ingenue, which is one of the dangers, or, you know, as a, 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 a queer, you know. Um, those are both, you know, brilliant to play, but I'd like to play many other things as well.
0: Um, now it's time for my quickfire favourites questions. So, answer oh, oh first gosh. thing that comes to mind. Um, Favourite queer film? Oh,
1: God. Oh, God. Um, favorite, uh, the Handmaiden. It's the best film ever made. Favourite queer TV show? Oh God, um, um, queer TV show? I don't watch very much television, so this is embarrassing. Um, oh, uh, I watched recently um, a series from Holland called Anne Ann Plus, and it's about um, a young girl in uh, the capital um, and her dating life, and she's gay and um, it is brilliant and uh, I want them to make a UK version really but it's on, it's on 4OD, um, I recommend it, it's really really good and it's uh, yeah, just like a nice window into um, like queer culture essentially, but also it just being like casual and fine, I really really enjoyed that in a similar way that I, um, I enjoyed the bisexual when that was on that was I sick. think Channel 4 as well, yeah really really good, um, That kind of yeah I like those a lot. Um, Favourite queer musician? Oh, oh okay, King
0: Princess. She's amazing. Favourite queer comedian? Mae Martin. Lobby. Um Favourite queer artist or exhibition? Oh, good question. Okay. Um,
1: do you know Gluck? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I love Gluck. And they have got a Gluck painting just, it's just out of shock. Um, <laughs> but they're, yeah. And like, also, maybe I just want to be them when I grow up. I don't know. They're just <laughs> incredibly well dressed. Incredible painter. Yeah. Incredible play- painter. And favourite queer play? Favourite queer play? Um, so my my brain thought the inheritance immediately, um, yeah, um, do I have another answer to that question? I mean, and then also, like, I mean, Fun Home, they, they fight, they fight for top spot, really, I think, yeah, um, and I like musicals, so probably, I mean, like, if I'm really honest, Fun Home pips it, um, but, uh, yeah, I think inheritance, I mean, Fun Home, you know, I'm female, so that's probably why it would pip it, but, um, I think inheritance is, like, a masterpiece like a masterpiece. I saw that
0: like three or four times. <laughs> it's incredible, incredible piece of art. What has your experience of the pandemic been like? Oh, um go on.
1: Um let me let me think. Um my experience of the pandemic, so I was working at the RSC when the pandemic happened um and obviously fear is shut. And so I stayed there for various like logistical and health reasons. I stayed in uh Stratford. Um so it was both very lonely but like very mindful. I did a lot of like wild swimming. I did a lot of walking and yeah, a lot of thinking. Um, and yeah, I think that, you know, that obviously had two sides of it. But I think, yeah, for me, it's been kind of a reconnection with why I love nature is what I got from the pandemic. Yeah, just a lot of thinking time um, and thinking about why I want in, in life, really. So I think it can be, um,
0: it, there are positives to take from a really dark thing.
1: Um,
0: and what have you most missed most about theatre this year?
1: Oh, um, people, people's eyes, people's faces, people's breath. Um, you know, like, yeah, I think I love my job because I get to look at people and really look at them and um, like listen to them and respond to them. And I just can't do that anymore like i'm talking to you and i'm also checking myself i'm checking the camera and i'm checking the like and that communication has gone and i think i just think that is the most important thing that humans do is like to really look and listen to each other and we can't do it there's a delay and like 90 percent of the way we communicate is gone and so i miss that really badly um and i mean yeah a lot of my life is constructed around going to the theater and seeing my friends who work in theater and my job so like a huge part of my life is just like um vanished really so yeah i miss a lot of it like i I did i wrote an article about this or i did an interview for one of the newspapers about this and there's just like a huge list of all the things i miss. but yeah like human connection in between stuff i think we're missing the liminal communication we do like the walk up walk up the stairs and how was your journey and oh nice coat and i think that is as important as the other stuff you know i think the conversation you have while you're making tea and tea break is actually as creative and as important as the chat you have in the room. And the connections, the friendships you make there are just as important to the creation of the character you end up making. And um, yeah, I miss, I miss it all, really. All of it, can I say all of it? My answer is all right. <laughs> It's a good answer. Okay. <laughs> and what was the last show you saw pre-pandemic? Um, last show I saw pre-pandemic, um, I think, if I get the order right, it was The Whip. Is that the right order? Maybe it was Boy in a Dress. But these are two shows that were on at the RSC when this happened. Um, and the Boy in a Dress is about a boy who wants to cross-dress at school. And um, there's a lot of stigma attached, obviously. So that that's great that that was on. Um, really, really, I took my mum to see that for her birthday. Um, she loved it. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then the other show was The Whip, which was on in The Swan at the same time, which is the smaller theatre at the Royal Shakespeare Company. And... Um, that is again brilliant um again and very timely about um basically abolition in the uk and um the uh, the bailouts done by the uk government to slave owners and um the progress of that and like the debates that happened around that and it's a very clever play because you start watching it thinking oh we all know how this ends like oh come on and then you get to the middle and you're like oh my god i had no idea things were this bad and that you know and we only finished paying off that three years ago the bailout for the slave trade and yeah I think that that is being put on at that theatre with that audience who will start going nah, blah 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 <laughs> and being like oh my god I think is masterfully done and um, I think it's streaming at the moment so
0: that people should watch that um I know everything's very up in the air right now but if you've got any exciting projects coming up that you can tell us about
1: um, I think the cool answer would be not that I can tell you about, um, but the answer is no. <laughs> um, the, um, yeah, they, um, you know, things, auditions happen, auditionings are happening again, so sort of, but yeah, we went into tier three yesterday. So everything that was possible has stopped being possible again. And, um, this industry will not come back until that vaccine is out, you know? Um, but you know, that vaccine will be out soon. And, um, yeah, I'm very excited about that. And uh finally, what are your hopes for 2021? I got asked this the other day. My uh, my answer was I hope to get paid for doing the thing I love again. Um, which I did do a bit this year, but like I was almost full time doing that before. So that that's what I want. I want to get yeah. me on the stage again, basically.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I hope we see you back on the stage very soon. Thanks,
1: Hannah. Yeah. We really, really lovely. It. talking to you. Really great talking to you.
0: Anna I handily mentioned my top two films of the year, Disclosure and Dating Amber. The former is executive produced by Laverne Cox and features interviews with numerous trans creatives and thinkers on trans representation in the past century or so. It will inevitably alter the way you think. Dating Amber, meanwhile, stars Fiona Shea and Lola Petticrew as two gay teens in 90s Ireland who start a fake relationship to prevent bullying at school. It's a big-hearted drama about the power of friendship, and the turning point when the pair stumble into a gay bar will make any LGBTQ adult recall their first taste of freedom. Now, it would be remiss of me to not at least mention Netflix's most recent LGBTQ plus release, The Prom. It's about a group of Broadway actors who descend on a small Indiana town to help a girl whose prom has been cancelled because she wanted to bring another girl as her date. First, the positives. Two words, Meryl Streep. She made me want the fictionalised musical her character Dee Dee is best known for to be real. The film's songs, which I've loved since the premiere of the Broadway show it is based on, are undoubtedly addictive too. And as queer women, Joellen Pellman and Ariana DeBose bring an authenticity to their roles as Emma and her closeted girlfriend Alyssa, respectively. But that, in turn, highlights the film's fatal flaw. As well as being what many people have deemed an insensitive use of gay face, James Corden's performance as Barry lacked authenticity... And though I'm thrilled his co-star Andrew Rannells didn't feel pigeonholed into playing a gay character, as he has mentioned in interviews, I can't help but think that the moment when Barry is crying over his relationship with his parents would have been more believable had the character been played by him. This episode's From the Archives highlight comes in the form of but I'm a cheerleader. Jamie Babbitt's classic has just been re-released as a Director's cut version to mark its 20th anniversary. Natasha Lyon plays Megan, an initially in-denial cheerleader sent to an ex-gay camp, and Clea Duval stars as her fellow camp member, Surly Graham, who is A-OK with her sexuality. The film's lasting power is in its humour. Who would have thought a film about conversion therapy could be so funny and gloriously camp? Jamie said her inspiration for the look and feel of the film came from John Waters, David LaChapelle, Edward Scissorhands, and Barbie, and that tracks. The 50s aesthetic and the blue and pink colour scheme add to the film's aim of exposing the absurdity of gender norms. My favourite story about the making of the film is that of how Natasha came to play Megan. The story goes that she visited her friend Clear in San Francisco and spotted the script of a cheerleader on the passenger seat of Clear's car. After Natasha read it and loved it, Clear called Jamie to suggest that Natasha be considered for the role of Meghan. Jamie didn't think she was right for the part. She described her look as Janice Joplin and very much not that of straight-laced Meghan, but flew to New York to meet her at a coffee shop in the East Village. And the rest is history. The film's legacy lives on. Last year, I saw a scratch performance of part of the musical adaptation. And let's just say The Prom is no match for that. Speaking of music, in September we saw the highly anticipated release of Dublin bass quartet Pillow Queen's debut, and my album of the year, In Waiting. At its heart is a sense of unity, which is especially highlighted on its queerest tracks. Brothers, for instance, sees the band examine gender and explores the concept of chosen family and the anguish of presenting yourself as you wish to be seen. Meanwhile, the song Gay Girls, which brought the many fans, me included, when it featured on the soundtrack of the aforementioned Dating Abba, takes us back to the days of learning from a first queer love and coming out. It plays on the duality between queerness and religious imagery, with the line, I spent the whole night belly aching about a fire sign, suggesting both lesbian stereotypical love of astrology and a fear of hell. A sense of community is also blended with sin in the line, do you want to be on the cheek of a liar that roots for you? However, in the end, the gratitude of the refrain, I was a fool, thank you, wins out. They are proud and they don't care who knows it. Boston-based musician Manny Camargo, who performs under the name Yavin, also celebrates queer attraction in his latest single, which was released in October. It's my track of the episode, So without further ado, here's Hot by Yavin.
2: I want you to talk to me You can read it on my face I want to take the lead But I'm a bit too scared to say Be daring, getting what I want now Will you help me try out Being daring, cause you're what I want now I've been hoping for one moment You and me Between the sheets I keep these days What's your time Read in between my lines for just one single night, you might see there's more to me than what you first think of me. Oh.
0: 2020 also heated up with the Barbican's Masculinities, Liberation Through Photography exhibition, which featured an array of nudes, among other images, of course. It reopened to great acclaim in the summer, after the UK's initial lockdown. For those of us who couldn't see it, much of the exhibition has been moved online. You'll find a curated tour of the photographs, as well as insightful short films, including a chat with gender-fluid fashion designer, Harris Reed, and queer photographer, Campbell Addy. The Queering Masculinities section of the exhibition featured work by Peter Huhar, who movingly photographed the New York counterculture of Christopher Street in the 70s and 80s. His picture of drag artist, David Britzenhofer, mid makeup application, is one of the most striking images of the collection. His black and white photographs convey a sense of peace and pride, an idyll created among the oppression. In contrast, Sunil Gupta's 1987 Exiles series, taken after he returned to his hometown of New Delhi to photograph the queer culture there, features subjects whose faces are turned away from the camera often or hidden, a sign of the even deeper oppression faced in India at the time. These images are the only coloured photographs in this section, but the colour and life of India's major landmarks are contrasted by this sadness. Hal Fisher's Gay Semiotics series, meanwhile, is a fascinating deconstruction of queer coding in the 70s, such as the practice of flagging with different coloured handkerchiefs to signify sexual preferences. My comedy highlight of the year is Technically TV, but Mae Martin is a comedian first and foremost, and their semi-autobiographical show Feel Good is just as charmingly funny as we would expect. And frankly, I'll take any opportunity to remember the time May gave me a DVD at Soho Theatre for free when I was trying to pay for it. They're a good egg. The show centres around the relationship between May, played by <laughs> May, and Charlotte Ritchie's character George, who has never dated a woman before and is reluctant to introduce May to her loved ones. But while George is re-examining her sexuality, May, too, is unpacking her relationship to gender. The scene in which she scrutinises her appearance in the mirror results in one of the most heartfelt performances of the year. She is also a recovering addict, and much hilarity ensues as a result of her NA meetings and her sponsor Maggie, played by Sophie Thompson. But ultimately, it's an empathetic, touching testament to the importance of people, flaws and all, connecting. And I think we all need that right about now. In the UK, it's available on all four, and it's on Netflix in many other countries. It, too, has just announced a second season, and boy does that make me feel good. My literature pick of the year is the graphic novel Everything Is Beautiful and I'm Not Afraid, a Bao Pu collection by Yao Xiao, a China-born illustrator who lives in the US. If it's not what you need this year, Apart from a vaccine and more competent politicians, I don't know what is. Featuring comics serialised monthly on the website Autostraddle, as well as brand new ones, it explores the search for identity and connection through the fictional life of a young queer emigrant. Baopu stands for holding simplicity, a Taoist ideal of wishing to return to a simpler state. And this book is just as comforting as that sounds. On that hopeful note... Happy holidays everyone and stay safe.